Rowan, so great to see you here as we get into this next section of Galatians. Paul gets a bit fiery, we're going to work out why, so why don't we pray and ask God to help us as we think through this passage. Let's pray together. Thank you so much for this day. Now you know where each of us has been, you know where our thoughts are and the ups and downs of life, but you also know what we need to hear and today Lord you've wanted us to hear this word. And so we ask that as we think through Paul's word to the Galatian church and your word to us through him, that by your spirit you would help us to grasp with great depth and clarity what it means to trust you in everything. Pray this in your son's name. Amen. One of the things I find incredibly easy in life is starting things. I don't know if you're like me. I find starting things quite easy. I've started all sorts of hobbies once or twice. You know, I've started habits. Um, I find it fairly easy to start friendships or to start fights. Um, um, I've started a, a software company. I started a church. I started a marriage. I've started a family. There's so many things that I feel like I've started. For me, generally speaking, starting things is easy. The thing that I find hard is finishing them. <laughs> I find finishing things so tricky to keep going to the end. When you start out, everything's all exciting and new, there's potential everywhere, uh, and then it just turns into hard work. You've got to keep going. Now, one of the things I admire the most in people is the ability to keep going to the end. I don't know how many times I've started some sort of exercise regime, only just to give up, not too long into it. I don't know if you're similar. You give it a go, but then it's cold, or it's raining, or you get sick, or the temperature's wrong, or you just don't feel like it, and, and you just stop. Um, one of the things that inspires me is a friend of mine. Uh, he, he kind of encourages me to keep going. He, he posts all of his runs on this application called Strava. I don't know if you've heard of it. It basically exists to either brag about how good you are or to encourage others to keep going because you can, you can keep doing it. It's kind of like social encouragement to keep going to the end. Anyway, he's a runner. This year, so far, this year, he's run 1,382 kilometers. That's what it said last night when I looked up his profile. That's a lot. 1,382 kilometers. He's done 171 runs this year. Do you know this is only the 157th day of the year? Uh, He's he's legitimately, uh, he just runs daily, sometimes more than daily. Um, This year alone, his elevation gain, so the amount of meters he's climbed, 43 kilometers. That's enough to scale Everest five times. That's the elevation gain of his runs that he's done this year. But the figure that impresses me the most is his all-time distance run. Uh, He has done, in his life, logged on the app Strava, 18,740 kilometers. That's a lot. (laughs) Do you know the longest commercial airline flight is only 1,700 kilometers? He has run longer than the longest commercial airline flight, although he did stop in between. (laughs) He hasn't run the whole way. When it comes to the Christian life, for many of us, we're kind of starting out this race called the Christian life. Some of us are skirting around the starting line, working out if we want to run or not. Others of us are in the first few moments and we're excited. We're, we're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, amazed at Jesus. We've got spring in our step and a glint in our eyes. We're like, let's go. I want to run. Jesus is amazing. For others of us, we're mid-race. <laughs> We've been running the Christian life for a while. And if we're honest, we get tired. Sometimes we find ourselves wondering why we started in the first place or how on earth we're going to be able to keep going to the end. 
We find ourselves looking around for something to give us that extra kick. Is it some new way, some spiritual steroids that we can take to make it that bit easier? Things we can do to bring God's blessing, to make it through, to to make sure we're standing firm at the end, to look to others maybe. For others of us, we're nearing the end. We've we've run the race, we've, we've held on to the prize, but perhaps for us, the temptation is just to pull our foot off the pedal a bit more, to coast downhill. We find ourselves, as we get older, getting a bit fuzzy around the edges. I'm not talking about body hair. I mean, theologically, we start forgetting what called us into this race in the first place. It seems a bit distant, and we seem less concerned to get things right and more concerned to coast home happy and just keep the peace. We allow different ideas to creep into our minds that we never would have let creep in before. We find ourselves going through the motions where religiosity trumps relationship with God more often than it should, where our joy perhaps becomes more jaded. The question for all of us is this, how do we keep running the Christian life? What does it look like to to hold on, to, to stick it out, to make sure that when the end comes that we are still standing? In 1976, a man by the names of James Hunt won the the championship for Formula One. He was a fantastic racing driver, but the thing was, he didn't take life very seriously. He didn't take his role as a racing driver seriously. He was a larrikin. I think people understand what we mean by that. He just didn't care what other people thought. He wasn't disciplined at all. He didn't bother to turn up to the podium finishes when they presented the trophy. He's like, stuff it. I'm just going to go off and drink with my friends. He won the Formula Formula One championship. He was the world's best driver, 1976. By 1979, only three years later, he'd retired. I remember a quote from another driver saying, I saw him seven years after that, barefoot, as a television commentator without a dollar to his name, riding a push bike with a flat tyre. He didn't make it to the end. How do we make sure as Christians we make it? We stand firm in Christ. This next section of Galatians is exactly what we need to hear. Because it's so easy to lose sight of what it means to run this race. It's so easy to fail to finish. So Paul figuratively grabs the Galatians by the head and he turns their head and pushes their gaze back in the right direction. He says, you need to look at the start. That's the first point if you're following along. Galatians 3 verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who has cast a spell on you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. The key to continuing the race, says Paul to this Galatian church, is to look to the start, to look how they started. See, the Galatians began the Christian life because God set their eyes on the news of who Jesus was. He set their eyes on the gospel. They weren't actually there in Jerusalem when Jesus was crucified, but Paul came and described the reality of who Jesus is, that he was God's promised king, the the, the Messiah, the Christ. And that he died in their place. And it was like God lit those words up to the Galatians in neon lights. They saw Jesus as if they were there. They recognized who he is and what he had done. That word there publicly portrayed is kind of like a massive billboard. Paul came and spoke the gospel like a massive public billboard pointing people to Jesus. They saw the significance of God the Son come in the flesh. They trusted that he he died for them. They were convinced that he was all they needed, that he was coming back again. 
That's how they began the race. The problem is, at this point, they're losing focus. Jesus is no longer all they think they need. They've started after a while looking for some sort of spiritual steroids, slipping back into religiosity rather than relationship. And that might be where you are today. That's why Paul comes to them and so clearly says, you foolish Galatians. Literally, who has cast a spell on you? Who has bewitched you? Who's bedazzled you and pulled you away from the Jesus you first trusted? What is going on for you? Wake up. He loves them. He wants them to remain in Jesus. He wants them to finish the race. So he reminds them of how they began, of what they saw in Jesus and how the most amazing thing happened to them. When they trusted this word that Paul spoke, when they recognized who Jesus was, they received the gift of the Spirit. Have a look at verse 2. I only want to learn this from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law? Or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by the Spirit, are you now finishing by the flesh? Four times in this passage, Paul talks about the gift of the Spirit of God. And there's something amazing for us to understand here about who God the Spirit is and what it means to have Him dwell in us. We need to get some background to understand this gift of the Spirit. In John 4, uh, John tells us that God is Spirit. Uh, David tells us in Psalm 139 on the screen, Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. See, the spirit is God and God is spirit. And the most common word used for spirit in the Old Testament means breath. Uh, God's breath, God speaks out. And what we understand throughout the Bible is that the one true and living God is three persons. His Father, Son, and Spirit. There's one God, but three persons. The whole trajectory of the Old Testament is a longing to have God with us, to have God dwell with His people in in the temple. That was the idea. They wanted God to dwell with them, and God promised to be uh, Israel's God and and them, His people. He dwelt in the temple in that holy place. But the whole trajectory of the Old Testament is to have God not just with us, but in us. In Numbers chapter 11, we see that God placed His Spirit on Moses uh, to lead God's people in God's way. God's Spirit in the Old Testament was generally only given to the leader of God's people at that time. So God puts His Spirit on Moses uh, to to lead Israel, to help them work out what God's will is, and and God uses Moses as as His mouthpiece. We then, we then see in the judges that God gives His Spirit to one judge at a time to save Israel from their own stupidity. And the Spirit is put upon the judge. The judge saves them from the situation they're in. They then follow God for a while and they rebel against God and God raises up a new judge, puts His Spirit on them. The judge then saves them and leads them out. You see, the Spirit is given to King Saul and then to King David as a sign of God's leadership, a sign of God's chosen leader. So in Psalm 51, when David says, take not your spirit from me, he's not just saying, oh, I'm worried that um, I might lose God's presence. He's saying, don't remove the kingship you've given me from me. Don't, Don't take me from being the leader over God's people. Stay with me and help me lead your people. The Spirit of God is generally only with one person at one point of time throughout the whole Old Testament. 
But there's a brief moment in Numbers 11 where the Spirit's given to more than one person. And it's worth trying to understand this bit for a moment. Moses has been overwhelmed with responsibility to lead his people. Uh, and there's all this stuff going on. He wants to talk to the people and help them to put God first. But they're, they're going wayward and he's kind of like, oh, I can't do it all. And then so what God does is he brings 70 men from the elders of the people. And in Numbers 11:25, this is what God says. The Lord descended in the cloud and spoke to Moses. He took some of the spirit that was on Moses and placed the spirit on the 70 elders. As the Spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they never did it again. There's this moment here where God places His Spirit on multiple people to be able to speak to the people of Israel. And you're like, what is going on? In fact, that's exactly what Joshua asks. Joshua, who would take over from Moses' leadership, he sees two people that weren't there, but seem to be prophesying, and it looks like that they've got the Spirit of God. And Joshua's like, what is this? This, this can't happen. Now look at verse 28 of Numbers 11. Joshua, son of Nun, I've always been amused by that. How does a nun have a son? Anyway, Joshua, son of Nun, assistant to Moses since his youth, responded, Moses, my Lord, stop them. So he wants to stop these people who are prophesying because they have the Spirit of God. But Moses asked him, are you jealous on my account? If only all of the Lord's people were prophets and the Lord would place His Spirit on them. And we see a trajectory where God is looking forward to the point and people are longing for the day when God's Spirit would dwell in us so we might know God's way and live God's way. It begins even earlier than this, but from this point on, you see this desiring to have God in us. That's why in Deuteronomy 5, God says, speaking of all of Israel, if only they had such a heart to fear me and keep all my commands so that they and their children would prosper forever. God's longing is that His people follow Him and our need is a heart that would obey God's commands. And the way to get that was through God giving us a new heart. And we don't hear that until way, way later in, in the book of Ezekiel. And there's, there's promises of, the, of the God, God's Spirit being poured out on people in Isaiah and we'll get to Isaiah later on this year. But in Ezekiel 36, we hear this. God says, I will give you a new heart. And put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. The promise of the spirit is a promise to bring God's people back to himself. By the spirit dwelling in them and a new heart being given. We don't know all the mechanisms. Ah, because it's not until Acts 2 that that day comes. On the day of Pentecost. Interestingly enough, in God's providence today across the world is celebrated Pentecost Sunday. The day we, we, we celebrate that, that God gave His Spirit to His people. It just so lined up. We didn't plan it, but just did. God's good, even when we forget things. On the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, God poured out His Spirit, where the Spirit comes to dwell in those who trust Jesus. Peter, at that sermon on the temple forecourts outside the temple, as he speaks about what has gone on, quotes Joel 2. He says this, it's in Acts 2.17. And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He says this phenomenon that you see of people speaking in a little fire above their heads is not people being drunk. This is God pouring out His Spirit. This is the day you've been longing for. Jesus has died and risen and He explains then the gospel. 
as Paul would do a little later amongst the Galatians, he explains who Jesus is and what he's done. The people are cut to the heart and ask these Jews, what should we do? God has come by His Spirit. Jesus has died and He's risen again. He was God's Messiah. We've crucified the one who is Lord and Christ. What should we do? And Peter says, Acts 2.38, Repent and be baptized, each one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Repent, be baptized, each one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. In other words, come to Jesus and trust Him. He's paid the price for your sin and God will give you at that moment the Holy Spirit. The forgiveness of sins is because of the work of Jesus. God, the Spirit in us, at that point, is a gift. God gave God's Spirit to us that God might dwell in us. This is the amazing reality of the Spirit in us. In the Lord of the Rings, uh, there's this moment, I'm not a huge Lord of the Rings fan, but there's this moment where Frodo, um, that kind of hairy-toed guy, um, realizes, maybe he's getting old, sorry. You can link that with the, okay, I'll just move on. (laughs) Frodo realizes what an amazing gift he's been given by Bilbo, his friend. Bilbo gives him a coat of mail, uh, which is like a, an, arm, an armoured coat, right? Not stamps, postage stamps, a, a, a coat of, of mail that protects him. Uh, he's kind of like, oh, this is great. He says thanks to Frodo. Doesn't else. He puts it on underneath his clothes and off he goes. And it wasn't until later that Frodo realises the incredible worth of the gift Bilbo's given him. He's walking along and he overhears a conversation where someone's talking about how, how rich Bilbo was. And he's like, really? Years ago, they say, someone gave Bilbo a mithril coat. Now, in the novel, mithril is the most valuable and beautiful precious metal that exists. It was a thousand times more valuable than gold or silver because it was stronger than gold or silver. And it was a hundred times lighter at the same time. It's this amazing, mythical, magical metal. (laughs) And he's been given this mithril coat. But he says, what? An entire male coat made of mithril. Do you know how much that's worth? That will be worth more than every bit of property in that man's entire country. Frodo's walking along as he overhears that. And the writer tells us he was staggered by the thought that under his outer clothing, he was walking around with a value and power greater than that of his entire country. So it is for those who trust this gospel message. You have God, the Spirit living in you. To help you understand God's word that he has spoken through the prophets, through the apostles. To hear God and to know him and to trust him. You've been allowed by God to get who Jesus is. That he has died for you, that he's risen again. You have God comforting us, challenging us, changing us, provoking us. To be more and more like Jesus, holding us in till the day Jesus comes back. What an amazing gift we have in the person of the Spirit. We'll see in the next few chapters of Galatians, uh, Paul unpack what living by the Spirit looks like as we move through the the different chapters. But what I want us to see here is the incredible significance of God's Spirit in us. This is what every Testament longed for. It's what the plan of the Old Testament was about. But Paul's point here in Galatians 3 is that this gift... The reality of God living in those who trust Jesus, who acknowledge the Word of God, was a gift. 
but it came at the very beginning of the Christian life as a gift because they trusted the word Paul spoke. Look at verse 2 of Galatians 3. I only want to learn this from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by believing what you heard? Paul's saying you didn't earn this amazing gift. You couldn't earn that. You can't earn God living in you. You can't do enough to have God say, yes, you're good enough now for me to step and dwell inside you. No. The only way that can happen is by you believing that Jesus has done it for you. He's paid the price. He's given you his perfect life. He's died the death you deserve. And so now God has given you his spirit. You can't earn that. It happened because you trusted the word that I spoke. They began the Christian life trusting in this word of God and got the greatest gift ever, the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, God the Spirit living in us. There's a whole movement around today that says that God's Spirit comes as a second and subsequent experience of the Christian life. There's a movement of people that say, you know what, the Christian life you're living, if you're feeling tired and kind of like running along, you actually need on to, you need to change gears. You're just stuck in first gear. Yes, you trust that Jesus died for you and He rose again and you're saved as a Christian. You really need to change into the next gear and become a spiritual Christian. You need to have the Spirit's power in your life. You need to avail yourself of the spiritual gifts and have God take you and show you new things. That will be what empowers you. Friends, this is just the Galatian era all over again. People are thinking that actually we can get better, we can get further on in the Christian life by doing things to get God's Spirit to come into us and overtake us. The Spirit, Paul says, comes at conversion. You cannot be a Christian and not have the Spirit of God. You can't see who Jesus is and what He's done. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2, unless the Spirit of God reveals Him to us. Have a look at Ephesians 1.3, actually 1.13. In Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when? When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is a down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of His glory. The Spirit comes and dwells in us the moment we trust Jesus died in our place and rose again. He makes His home in in our lives, not because we're kind of cleaned up, not because our life looks clean, but because Jesus did it for us. God's not waiting until I've got life sorted out and then says, okay, okay, fix that, stop doing this, you know, stop your swearing, uh, stop, stop living for these other motives, then maybe I'll dip my toe into the scumminess that's a bit cleaned up of your Christian life. No, when you trust Jesus, Jesus gives His perfect life to us and as God looks at us, He sees Jesus and gives us His Spirit at that moment. That's what happens to every Christian. We might be walking around like Frodo, forgetting the value of God dwelling in us, but the reality is all Christians have God's Spirit in them. God is shaping and molding us. It happens at the point of conversion and through nothing that we have done, but by simply trusting the Word of God, the Gospel that Paul spoke, the Gospel that Peter spoke. So God pours out His Spirit. Paul's argument here in Galatians is this, Galatians, you received the Spirit of God through nothing you did at all. You know that came at conversion. And have you now gone on to think that you can do something more, you can gain some more encouragement, you can gain some better relationships, some better Christianity by doing things, by adding to that? 
Why do you return to works of the law? Why do you go back to these ways that you think will keep you more religious and more, more right before God when Jesus has offered it all? He's given you his life. You don't need anything other than trusting in what Jesus has done because that is everything to finish the Christian race. You're losing your focus. We need to continue just the way you started, by trusting the Word of God. Now, it's important to recognize here that getting the Word of God wrong, uh, shaping slightly, molding the gospel that Paul spoke to think, oh, it's okay to flick back into things of the law or other religious ways or other ways of being um, built up in Christ, to think that they're okay has dramatic consequences. Foolish Galatians, he says, who's bewitched you? You're basically handing in your faith. You're not going to finish the race if you keep going by adding to the, to the law. You, you, you'll fail because you're trusting in more than Jesus. We've got to get the gospel right. As a view around, we shouldn't be too theological. We shouldn't be so tied around what we believe and what the Bible is saying. But friends, just a small error here can end up as an eternity in hell. Because we just add a little thing and we think it's okay or required and we get lazy and we don't think about what God has said through His Word. Getting the gospel right, getting God's Word right, as given to us through the Scriptures, is vital. We need to be people of the Word and understanding the Word so that we finish the race, so that we can trust the truth rather than work for error. Words matter. The Christian life, though, is not just about trusting God. You hear people say, oh, I, want, I want to trust God and trust Jesus. That's what the Christian life's about. It's about trusting the promises of God. And that's why Paul now goes on to explaining the example of Abraham. The example of Abraham, point number three. Because that's exactly what Abraham did. He trusted the promises of God, the word of God that was given to him. Not, not a greater word or a different word, but the word God spoke. Look at Galatians 3 verse 6. Just like Abraham, who believed God or trusted or relied on God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. Now again, big words. Um, belief, there is the, is the word faith turned into a verb. Faith, he believed. Uh, so Abraham trusted God, and it was credited to him as he's declared right before God, righteousness. What Paul is saying is that He's speaking to a bunch of different people, probably Gentiles, and there might be some people with Jewish backgrounds in there, but he's using the argument of Abraham, the foundation of, of, of um, God's people, to say Abraham became a Christian. Abraham started his race by faith, by trusting in the promise of God. There's no point thinking we can secure more of God's blessing by what we do. God's blessing was promised to Abraham that he'd be great, his name would be great, he would be the father of many nations, he would have a land and that it would last forever. The, the promise was given to him. That's great blessing. How did he achieve it? By, by what he did? No, by trusting in God's promise of what God actually said. He explains it in verse 8 of chapter 3. Now the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. And promised the gospel ahead of time to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed through you. Consequently, those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. Such a dense little sentence. 
The scriptures saw in advance. In other words, when God spoke that in, in Genesis 12 to Abraham, that you, I'll make you into a great nation, I'll give you many descendants, uh, and I'll give you land and blessing. Right? Well, when he spoke that, he, he proclaimed the gospel ahead of time to Abraham. In other words, that what we would fully know now that Jesus has come and he was um, the one who died in our place and rose again and, and enables us to be blessed and experience the blessing of God in the indwelling of the Spirit and relationship with God, all of that was for, for kind of promise to Abraham. It was pointing forward to what would happen. It didn't have all of the clarity, but it would be brightened and shown and, and applied to Jesus. All the nations will be blessed through you through Jesus' death on the cross. Not only could the Jews become the people of God, but those who weren't Jews could have God's Spirit dwell in them and call God their God, exactly what was promised to Abraham. As we tire in the Christian life, as we start to look for a, a spiritual boost, as we think about adding things in or what we need to do to help God get us through or to have a, a, a comfortable or an on-fire life, we've got to remember how we started. We've got to remember how Abraham started. He trusted the promises of God. And that is how he continued, trusting in God's promises. God promised he would do this to Abraham. Through no, Abraham didn't need to do anything other than trust. And God did it. God always does it. He brings about His purposes. He does it for us. We don't need to provide our effort or make ourselves good enough. He has done it for us because the blessings of God were always achieved not by works, but by the work of another. And that's where Paul then focuses on the work of Jesus. Point number four. Galatians 3 verse 10. For all who rely on the works of a law are under a curse. Because it's written, everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. Now, it's clear that no one is justified before God by the law. No one is right before God by obeying the law, is what he's saying. Because the righteous will live by faith. But the law is not based on faith. Instead, the one who does these things will live by them. But Christ redeemed us. He bought us back from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. God's plan for that promise given to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17, God's plan for that promise was the work of Jesus. He would, Jesus would offer his perfect life Last week, in chapter 2, we looked at how Jesus fulfilled the law for us. He has done it for us. He did what we couldn't do. He perfectly obeyed God's law. He didn't fall down at any point. He did what no human has been able to do up until that point or will ever be able to do again. He perfectly gave His perfect life for us. And when we trust Jesus by faith, we're united to all the work that He has done. I talked about us kind of being like in an aeroplane, for the benefits of the aeroplane to get us from, from Auckland to Dubai, we need to be in the plane. We need to trust the work of the plane. And, and last week, Paul kind of pointed out that Jesus did that. He gave His perfect life for us. But this week, He's showing us the other side of what Jesus did. Not only did He give us His perfect life, not only did He do what we couldn't do, He took what we couldn't take. He took the curse for us. See, we've not been able to live up to this law. We've not been able to do what it says. Um, we saw there that, that Paul's saying, if you want to be saved through the law, if you want to be saved by doing, you need to do all of it. 
You need to, everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. Where we come along and we go, you know, we often think God's pass mark is just a little bit below where we're at. What is good enough for God? But here we see that God's saying, no, 100%. Perfection. And because we fail, we deserve God's punishment. We deserve death for turning our back on Him. And what Jesus did, and what Paul's reminding the Corinthians is that Jesus died your death. He was cursed for you. He took the penalty that God ought to have poured out on us, and He poured it out on Jesus. Jesus died our death. He took the punishment we deserve. And the way that that is applied to us is by trusting that He's done it. The way the benefits of a plane are applied to us, if we want to fly from here to Dubai, is by getting on the plane. It's by trusting that the plane will do the work. We talked last week, you can't have the benefits of the plane apply to you by following the plane. You know, you get on the runway, the plane takes off and you just run after it. I know where I'm going, I'm, I'm following the plane. Following Jesus doesn't mean I'm just running after Him, doing what He said. No, it means being united to Him and in Him, trusting Him. Uh, we, we can't just be inspired by the plane. I could look like a, a plane and even have little bits that kick up at the end like their cool wings do and kind of flap a bit, but I'm not going to go anywhere. I can't just be inspired by the plane. I need to be in the plane. I can't just sit under the cover of the plane. That might work well if it's raining at the airport. But once the plane takes off, I can't what, I'm duct tape myself to the bottom. It's not going to end well. I need to be in the plane. I need to trust the plane. I need to get on the plane. Paul's saying to this Galatian church, you got on the plane. And when you got on, you saw it was first class because God the Spirit was amongst the cabin. In fact, not just amongst the cabin, but in you. You were hanging out with God the Spirit and the captain was Jesus who did it all for you. Who's, who's offered to be um, cursed in your place, who's given you his perfect life. You got on the plane and you realize it's first class. There's no inferior business class or any of that premium economy or even economy. Like you're on. Jesus has done it all. There's no in-flight upgrades. There's nothing you need to pay or do in the plane. You're just in the plane and the plane, all the benefits of, of, of taking you to that location of a new kingdom, no more mourning or crying or pain when you land there. All the benefits will be applied because of Jesus. You just got to sit in the plane. The problem is the Christian life hits turbulence. We're sitting in the plane called Jesus, trusting Him. We've, we put our life in His hands and we look out and the plane's shaking. And, and the Christian life has ups and downs and hardship. You might be in first class. It might have all been done for you. But there's points where it gets shaky. And the temptation for us all is to look outside the window and think, man, this plane's not going to hold. This plane actually won't do what it promised to do. The pilot's not the best captain. I think I could chart a better course. And so what we do is we're like, I'm going to open that door, jump out and flap. Because I think I can do it. I think I can do it better. And we don't trust the plane that's around us. Or, or maybe we don't want to jump out of the plane because Jesus still did some good stuff as our captain, but we want to help him out. And so we kind of build some bicycle feet things and build them in to help the plane go a bit faster. And we start pedaling and everyone on the plane starts flapping their arms as if it's going to help. But that's what we do. We're like, oh, I need this spiritual boost. I need to do this thing to make sure the plane gets me to the destination. Paul's saying... You got on the plane because you trusted the pilot. You came to Christianity because you saw what Jesus did at that cross. He died in your place. He rose again. He offered you his perfect life. And not only that, he took the penalty you deserve. It's, it's, it's finished in him. Just stay on the plane. 
Stop trying to upgrade or think about new things you need to add in or better ways of Christianity. Come and look at the message I told you in the first place. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Trust Him. Galatians 3.10 For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Because it is written, everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. If you were to add pedals to the plane of faith, you need to fly totally yourselves. There's no plane, there's no pilot, there's no captain. Because you're saying, I don't need you, Jesus. Jesus' death was not enough. It's like saying, you know, I, I think there could have been another way. I think Jesus' death in my place wasn't enough. There needed to be more. But verse 11 says, Now it's clear that no one is justified before God by the law. We can't pedal fast enough. We can't fly high enough. Because the righteous will live by faith. The way to finish the Christian life is the same way you started. Trusting in the work and word and promises of Jesus. Paul's saying, Galatian church, he's saying, Evie, take him at his word. Trust he will do what he says. He will come back again. That his death was sufficient for you. That he has taken the penalty that you deserve. That he's offered you your perfect life. Trust in him. You have God, the Spirit, living in you because of nothing that you have done. You don't need to add on to it. You don't need to do these new spiritual ways or, or sing in certain ways to get more of the Spirit or, or, or think you need to offer more faith. I need to trust God more. If I trust God more, then I'll, I'll be flying better. Have you ever noticed on a plane, it doesn't really matter how much faith you have. It doesn't matter whether you're on the plane going, I don't know if it's going to get me there or not. What matters is the trustworthiness of the plane. <laughs> I can have the smallest amount of faith ever, as long as it's enough to get on the plane and to stay on the plane and not put my trust in anything outside of the plane, then I'm going to get to my destination so long as the plane's good. People come along and say, you need more faith. Then God will do amazing things through you. You need to invite more of the Spirit's work into your life. You need to be experiencing these new gifts or amazing miracles and then that will give you an empowered Christian life. You need to add to what has been done for you in Jesus so then you can live His way rightly. How foolish we are to add to the gospel of Christ, to think that there could be anything more than what has already been done. My friends, the way we finish the Christian race is the same way we enter by trusting Jesus. He has given us the spirit-filled life now as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. He said, I've done it all. Trust me. Take me at my word. Hold on to me. I've paid the death you need to die. I've given you my life. Friends, we need to experience the joy of the Christian life. It's not found in doing more. It's found in reflecting on the gospel that was held out to us, that Jesus has done it all. Yeah, we should sing, not in order to get a, a better spiritual life, but because we recognize the life we've already been offered. We should praise God with our lives. We should speak of His goodness, not in order to be saved, but because we're in first class and the Spirit is in us. Like, hello, this is amazing. So often we forget that. Forget the worth of God in us and we think that there could be something else. How offensive that is to God, who's given us everything. So for, Paul says, finish by faith. Verse 14. The purpose was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus so that we could receive the promised spirit through faith. 
That's his summary statement. The Christian life from start to finish is by trusting Jesus. You can't earn it, you can't buy it, you can't build it, you can't add to it. But we can lose it. Wrong thinking disqualifies us from the blessings of God. That's Paul's whole premise, isn't it? That's the warning today. How amazing it is that we've, we've been saved through faith and it's only by faith and I only continue by faith. But do hear this warning. You can lose it. Paul says this Corinthian, this Galatian church, you foolish Galatians, look back to this. You've been bedazzled by ideas of adding more in. You've had someone say this thing and don't do it. Do not add for you have to do the whole law on your own. Do not get out of the plane. <laughs> so do hear the warning today, no matter where you are in the Christian life. At the start, be careful that you test everything that you hear against the Scriptures, that you head out in the right direction, that you don't take a wrong turn and think, oh, I'm excited about the Christian life and this looks great, I'm going to go off and worship Mary or, or do these other things or have a fully experienced life in these other spiritual ways. Come back to the Word of God. Let the Word of God guide you as God's Spirit through His Word points you in that right direction. For those of us that are mid-race, who want to be tired and are looking for that boost, remember look to the neon signs of the gospel that captivated us in the first place. Come back to the reality that it is finished. And for those of us nearing the end, who are feeling like slowing down and feeling like just letting more things kind of slowly shift in, right thinking matters. Stay in the plane to the end. It is all ours by faith. So friends, what do we do in the Christian life? How do we make sure we finish well? We sit tight. We hold on to Jesus, who is our captain, who has done it for us. And we experience the joy that comes from knowing it is finished. And we hold on to him.